0: it may seem kind of odd that we're now just in acts. We were in the apostles creed and then we celebrated uh, that, that series lasted 13 weeks. We had an introduction, and then the creed is divided up into 12 statements or 12 sections. So we looked at that creed as the foundation of apostolic Christianity. That is, what does the Bible say Christianity contains? And so we spent 12 weeks looking at that, and then we celebrated both Ascension and then Pentecost. And last week we looked at what happens after Pentecost with Peter and John uh, going before the Sanhedrin after they healed the man at the temple. And one of the things that we're doing in these, in these teachings, one of the things that we're attempting to do at least, is to form uh, in, our, in our minds a clear understanding of everything that the Bible says Christianity is about. And last week, we had noted how that includes a few things. One of the things was that uh, it it included a history-informed gospel. That is, when Peter stood up and made his defense, he didn't just state that man fell and Jesus came and died and that undid the curse. And he, he went through the entire history in summary form of what God had done with choosing the people of Israel by first calling Abraham and then dealing with Moses and then talking about what happened through the Kings, so on and so forth. Peter does not have a history agnostic or a or a history ignorant gospel. He has a gospel that is rooted and grounded in history. And the reason that was important was because Peter and all the other apostles are making the point that even though God was faithful to Israel, they had rebelled against him. That's what here we see in Stephen, in Stephen's message. He does the same thing. So it included a history informed gospel. But the other thing is Peter includes a warning of judgment. He he stands up and he declares that that there's a judgment that's coming against Israel. And one of the the elements of, of the gospel that we also need to preach today is uh, a warning of judgment. We saw, so it had a history-informed gospel. It had a judgment or a warning of judgment. It had a call to repentance, to follow in faith and be baptized in the name of Christ. And then finally, Peter makes the central most important point that we talked about last week was the exclusivity of salvation alone through the name of Jesus Christ so last week we we had kind of covered those things and that was the capstone on pentecost and ascension and and the apostles creed so we kind of just find ourselves uh running through the book of acts and and i think it's really helpful because we are going into a time as a church of intense evangelistic focus being with this uh beginning with this vacation bible school but right after the vacation bible school uh ends and that season is kind of done there's going to be two focuses of the church externally there's going to be the uh whiz kids and uh kids rock house and the the ministry to children and then there's going to be the the ministry at right campus fellowship or right state university which we call rock campus fellowship so there's gonna be those two emphases both the ministry to children and a ministry to, to young adults and so it behooves you as a member of this church to begin to think about where are the holes in your gospel, that is, if someone at Rock Campus Fellowship came up to you and asked you why you were a Christian, what would you say to them? So that's why we've been going through the Apostles' Creed and, and focusing these last few weeks on gospel effectiveness in in witnessing and in preaching. Uh, one of the things that we believe in this church is that God gave the fivefold ministry that is apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, not to do stuff in the church, but to build up the saints, to equip them for the work of the ministry. That is your goal as a Christian, as a member of this church is not to get your unsaved friends to come to church. Although that's a good thing to do. That probably would be beneficial for them. But your goal is to become someone who can share the gospel with that person that is what the bible says is the point of the administrative or the hierarchical elements of the church it's it's not the uh you know solo guitar pastor who you know is both like a mix of bono and you know talks like obama and you know has a has an awesome charisma it's not about a central leading pastor it's about a pastor who Exegetes scripture and builds up the the people in the church so that they can give an authentic witness of who Jesus is. So, uh, we looked at those things last week, and um, this week we're going to continue with those same elements. We're going to look how it's not just the apostles, but now it's the disciples who do the same things as the apostles. And it's important for you to see that. It's It's not just Peter and John. Uh, and and James who are, you know, doing these things as the apostolic, the, the, the 12, it's not just them who are in charge of bringing the word to Jerusalem. And so uh, we're beginning to see also a, a foundation for the history of the first few centuries of the church. And the things that take place in Acts are extremely important for us to understand the New Testament correctly. If you get Acts wrong, you get all of the New Testament wrong. And there are things in Acts which are very clear, which give us an indication of the purpose and point of the other books. That is the Pauline epistles, the you know epistles from Peter and John, and and then finally the the prof- prophetic word uh, of judgment that comes from John the Revelator, which we call the Book of Revelation. So, um, with that in mind, we're going to look at three areas today from this passage. Uh, The first area, last week we had talked about the apostolic power, that is, Peter and John uh, raised that lame man up and and he was healed instantly. The apostolic power that goes with and is corollary to apostolic preaching. So, with that foundation from last week, we're going to look at apostolic effectiveness. That is, what happened In the early church, why was it the case that they uh, were so effective? We're going to look at the prophesied destruction of Jerusalem, uh, which is a major core tenet of the New Testament in which this passage uh, that we read today uh, highlights. And then we're going to look finally at how Stephen in his life, just as in his death, was a faithful witness of who Jesus is. So, with that in mind, let's let's get into it. So, if you remember from the reading, there's a situation at hand, and the problem is that there were these Hellenistic Jews, that is Greek uh, influence or culturally Greek Jews, and then there were these Hebrew Jews, you know, Jewish, you know, Jew of Jew kind of thing Jews, uh, and they're both living together in this new community. There's these two separate groups. And there, there's Greek widows and Hebrew widows. They're living together in the church, and someone complains that we're not getting the fair shake of the funds that are that are given that the church has pulled together to help fund and take care of their weakest members. Basically, what this is is this is the church fulfilling the law where it said that you know uh, the the kinsman redeemer had to come and rise up a name for his brother and take care of the orphan and widow. This is the church beginning to fulfill the law. And so they're they're starting to take care of these, these widows in an intentional way and some sort of dispute arises. And the apostles react to this dispute with extreme clarity. They say, it's not fitting for us that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to handle this problem. And what they do is they tell the apostles come to the church and the, the disciples, and they say, "Appoint for yourselves seven men of good repute." So they basically, this is—I mean, if you were ever looking for a biblical basis of democracy, if you wanted it only from the New Testament, this might be the only one you get. They they ask the the apostles come to the disciples and say appoint yourselves representatives who will take care of these issues for us because it's not proper for us to deal with them. It it actually is the case that it is improper. It would be a sin for the apostles. Can you imagine Peter, the, the most articulate uh, now, after the Holy Spirit has fallen at Pentecost, the most zealous of all the apostles, can you imagine what a waste it would have been for the early church if Peter would have gone around and made sure that all the widows were getting their proper portions of the communal fund that they had established to take care of widows. Now, in the apostles saying it's improper for them to to stop the preaching, they do not say that it is unimportant that these widows get the, the, the money that they need or the food that they need. They say it's important, but it's not right for them. So this, is, this tells us a few things, that division of labor or speciality in the church is not a bad thing. It's rather important and proper. It would be improper for them to be completely distracted. Now, this doesn't mean that we install, uh, you know, apostles and bishops and pastors who are, you know, not servant leaders. That That is not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there are a reason for different jobs in the church, which is the point of, of 1 Corinthians. And so the apostles tell the disciples to nominate these guys and these people actually become uh, the deacons. And so from this, we learn that it is a very, very good thing for us young men to aspire to be the type of people who could be called men of good repute. It is your job, young man, young Christian man, to rise up and overcome the hindrances of the spirit of this age, the things which hold you back, so that you can free up those who can preach the word with boldness. That is one of your prime callings as a young single man or a young married man, if you're already married and you, and you don't think you're, you know, deacon level, but, but this is, it's an extremely important thing in the function of the church. We don't really focus on tithes and offerings, but I'll tell you what would happen if you guys stopped giving for the next three months, the church would go away. The funding, the way in which God has provided provision to the church so that it can continue to operate is that the people give their first fruits of their labors to the Lord by giving it to the church. And through that, the church uses the, the funds appropriately, and therefore the church has a life. In the same way, it not we don't just give our money, but we also give our time in taking on responsibilities such as the office of a deacon or, or someone who can just do things and handle responsibility. And so it's a very good thing for for us young men to seek to be these types of people. Now, don't hear what I'm saying and think that I'm asking for a bunch of people to do chores. It's actually the case quickly that these deacons do more than just administrate things as is the case with Stephen. And here is the fruit of what took place. The installation of these deacons had a specific effect. There is a summary verse in Acts 6, 7, which says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That is a summary verse. It is the Bible's way. It's the literature of the Bible's way of saying this was the outcome of the apostles' in these deacons and not having their hands tied with uh, things that were not extremely important or the the ultimate. These things are penultimate of importance. And so what's the implication? Well, the implication is that if those seven men were not there to be elected as representatives or deacons in the church, if those seven men were not fit to fulfill that role, then those things that we talked about in Acts 7, six seven would not have happened. Instead of them, uh, instead of the word of God multiplying and spreading rapidly, it would have been stifled because the apostles wouldn't have had time to preach. The number of disciples would have either stayed the same or slowly dwindled as they were persecuted and and uh, done away with. Uh, and none of the priests—that is, the the religious leaders. Of Israel, none of them would have repented. That that's what Acts six seven says. It says that because these, because the apostles did this, they installed these deacons. The summary verse says, "And the word of God spread rapidly and multiplied, and many disciples came, and even some of the priests." This means that the gospel is going forth in the city of Jerusalem. What is coming pat? Uh, what Jesus had said in the uh, great commission that you would be my witnesses in Jerusalem that was coming to pass because of this taking place. So likewise, young men, young men of this church, if you don't rise up and defeat the things that this culture attempts to hold you back with the word of God in this church and in these neighborhoods will be stifled and it will not spread rapidly as God intends. It is a supreme calling for us young men to rise up and be the type of people who can bear the load in the church. So that's what Stephen does. And Stephen steps up to this role. It says that he's a man filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, Stephen's a man of good repute. That means he has a good name, a good reputation. People think he's trustworthy. He's, he's not a, a, a swindler. He's not a thief. He's, he's a responsible man. We don't know his age, but it, it seems that he's a young guy. And so Stephen uh, begins to preach just like the apostles. Now, this is kind of a, a funny thing that's taken place, but it actually makes sense. Um, Stephen begins to preach and in that preaching, he includes what we talked about earlier, that, that apostolic preaching includes a warning of judgment, the warning of judgment that's coming. It's God's mercy that he tells the people who are under judgment, that the judgment is coming and he gives them a chance to escape. And so, Stephen goes around and it says that he was doing many great signs and wonders. Now, if you if you think about the development of the book of Acts, you see Jesus doing miracles and then disciples did miracles as well. And then Peter and John do a, a great act, a sign and a wonder, demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ. He is God in the flesh. And then Peter and all the other apostles, they lay their hands on Jesus. The uh, these deacons, these seven guys, and these men in turn begin to show the fruit of apostolic preaching and apostolic power. Power that is, they had begun to do the same things that the apostles had done before them. So this is no mere uh, administrative duty that these deacons are taking on. So encountering opposition from the Jews. Stephen overcomes them with greater wisdom that is articulation about the the old covenant scriptures. They're in a debate and they're disputing together and Stephen overcomes them with the truth and with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, what they have to do because they're losing the battle on grounds of truth is they have to resort to lies. The Jewish uh, opposition that day resorts to lies. And it says in Acts six thirteen through 14, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So, they they uh, bring these false witnesses. Now, the person who said they were false witnesses was Luke because Luke wrote the book of Acts. So, Luke calls them false witnesses. So, why are they called false witnesses? We're going to answer that question in a second. So, they turn to these lies and what's important to see in the way that the devil speaks all through the gospels, it, especially in the, the temptation with that of Christ, is he doesn't... Um, he doesn't come with blaring falsehood. He comes with a little bit of mixture in truth. And these lies, these false witnesses that come up and speak against Stephen, they do the same thing. So they accused Stephen of speaking against God by saying that Jesus would come and destroy the temple and that the customs of the old law would be ended. Now, if you are a um, typical Bible reader, It may sound ridiculous for someone to say that the accusation against Stephen, a prophetic and apostolic faithful gospel focused young man would include a mention of Jesus destroying the temple. That seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Does anybody think that's kind of weird? Anybody, anybody, a few people. Now, why, why is it the case that you think it's weird? Well, the, the reason is, is because uh, there's a little bit of falsehood mixed with a little bit of truth in their false witness against Stephen that day. In, Jesus, in John 4, Jesus is speaking to uh, the woman at, at the Samaritan well, a Samaritan woman, and they get into this discussion. And there's something that is a major tenant of the New Testament, which is kind of lurking beneath the radar so to speak, in most of our minds. And I'm going to bring that to light a little bit today. By no means do I have enough time to do it uh, complete justice, but John 4:19 19 uh, through uh, 26 says, The prophet said to him, or sorry, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. If you don't know the story, Jesus comes, asks her for water. She, you know, says hello and they start talking and then he, you know, gets a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that says this woman is actually not living with her husband and she's actually had a bunch of husbands and so... So Jesus tells her this and she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's, it's kind of funny, you know, that Jesus had just told her her entire life story. And then it's kind of like, oh, I I think you're really smart or, you you know, you're a prophet. God told you these things. And so because she sees that Jesus is a prophet, she at least acknowledges that God speaks to this man. He then, uh, she then begins to ask him a question. She says this, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, here's my question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, because she knew he was a Jewish not guy, not a Samaritan, you say that in Jerusalem is the, uh, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, okay, so what's the, the core there? Neither uh, the hour is coming, and it's now at hand, where you'll neither worship in on this mountain, you'll neither worship according to the customs of the Samaritans, nor will you worship in the mountain or the temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now that's a pretty intense thing to say for Jesus, you know I mean this is Jesus, he's a Jewish guy. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, if you already believed what I said, that it's a core tenet in the New Testament about the destruction of Jerusalem and the prophetic warnings, if you already believe that, then it's enough to just take Jesus' words right there. But if you don't believe that, you have to reconcile the, the, the non-existent existence of that kind of idea with what happens when she responds. Now, remember, they're in a discussion. This is the Bible. We're supposed to be able to make sense of it. Now, when Jesus says that there's going to be a time where you're going to worship in spirit and truth, not on any mountains or any geographic location, she responds to him saying, I know that the Messiah is coming. That is he who is the Christ. That's from the, the author of that book. When he comes, he will tell us all things. It is a complete non sequitur for her to say, You just said that Jerusalem, uh, that no one's going to worship in Jerusalem any longer, nor in Samaria, but now we're all those who are the children of God. We're going to worship in spirit and truth. It is a complete non sequitur for her to say, I know that the Messiah is coming, unless in the Samaritan understanding of the prophecies of the Messiah, that that would include the removal of worship exclusivity in Jerusalem. If if you don't get that, then then this passage makes no no sense. Why would she say I know that the Messiah is coming as in like it's kind of like Jesus said to her uh, when when it rains on a sunny day there is a rainbow and you know she would have said, "Yes, I know. God promised that a long time ago." That's basically the effect of what she's saying. And it gives us some insight into what the understanding of the Messiah was going to be. Jesus says to her, when she gets it correct, I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, she already knew that this was going to take place, that there was going to be some dispersion of the worship of Yahweh throughout the earth. So when she says, I know that he will tell us all things, it's not just tell, it's also bring about. And so, uh, this happens over and over and over again. So, um, I already covered that. So, again, Matthew 24, 1 through 2, let's look at another passage. We don't have time. If If you want to search this out, read in one setting, Matthew 22 through 28 in one time, you'll notice it everywhere. Um, I'm, I don't have it in the slides, but what happens when the crowds cry out, crucify him, crucify him to Pilate. And he says, Pilate says, this man did nothing wrong. The the the, the people who say, crucify him, crucify him, their response to Pilate's question is, let his blood be on us and on our children. That means that the blood uh, vengeance that comes against Jerusalem because they killed Christ that comes on them and their children in only one generation. So Matthew 24, one through two, Jesus left the temple and was going away. But when his disciples came out to point to him, the buildings of the temple, uh, he answered them. He said, you see all these, don't you? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one. uh, There will not be left here. One stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, one of the, Core reasons that Jesus was was uh, killed in the accusations of the Pharisees was that he said he would de- that they would destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and three days later he would build it back up. But then their false witnesses that come in the trial of Je- Jesus actually say, just like the, we read in the reading today about Stephen, that he was speaking against the temple and against the holy law. Now you've got to see what the Jewish religious leaders have done they've elevated their temple they've elevated the building of the temple on equal footing with the law. They said of Stephen that he's they're accusing Stephen of speaking against God and Moses and the law and this holy place they've established in their minds in their in their theology they've established Jerusalem and worshiping in Jerusalem alone as a core tenant of righteousness. And God comes to challenge that. So Stephen's goal, uh, Stephen's gospel was a reminder of the prophecy of Christ, that the temple would be destroyed. And rather than uh, these false witnesses uh, being totally false, they're partially true. And the way in which they're partially true is that these things were going to take place. And Stephen, though, was not speaking against God. He was speaking for God. That is why they're false witnesses. The partial truth that these witnesses help us to understand is that in a way, the coming of the Romans in 70 AD is a type of judgment coming of Christ. It's not the final coming, but it's a type of coming. So we claim today to be Bible-believing Christians, and um, we we talk about how we believe in the Bible. And it's true we should we should believe in the Bible, but it's my opinion that this is one of the major themes of the New Testament, and because we have become hard of hearing of deeper things in the Scriptures we totally ignore this central component of the new Testament. And it proves our hypocrisy. The fact that God has dealt justly with the city of Jerusalem should give us cause to fear and tremble before him. It should cause us to think if God has treated his people, who we are now his people in this manner, if he's dealt with them in a righteous way yet after time and again, sending them prophet after prophet and, and finally the son of God. And then after that, the apostles whom they all killed and persecuted, who are we to remain in our sins of idolatry, whatever form they take, it should cause us to tremble and fear before the Lord and see him as holy and magnificent One of the the meanings behind uh, the stone which the builders rejected, he has become, become the cornerstone. And this thing that he has done is marvelous in our eyes. When you begin to see this element of the New Testament, you will begin to see a God who is much more marvelous than simply just coming in the flesh dying. I mean, that's amazing. But the idea that God would be faithful to his own word to keep the judgments that he had prophesied. So who are we to practice licentiousness and to treat the grace of God in contempt and to sin against him? It should cause you to tremble and fear before the almighty because of what he's done. And it is a glorious, marvelous thing. So this is what Stephen is talking about. Now we know that Stephen had to talk about the types of things that the apostles had said earlier in Acts 2 and Acts 4. The reason was because in Acts 2, it says that all the disciples were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. That doesn't mean that they were just doing a lot of Bible studies. They were listening from the apostles who had just received the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would tell them all things and lead them and guide them into all the truth. And so the Holy Spirit has come and he's fallen on the apostles. They then begin to explain the Old Testament in light of the full fulfillment that came about through the life of Christ. And so they're teaching these disciples. So we don't specifically know what Stephen had said earlier before these false witnesses show up, but we have to conclude that it would have been basically a parrot of Peter. And so this is what Stephen does. He receives the Holy spirit through the laying on of hands that took place when the apostles had prayed over the deacons for the specific call of administrative duties in the church. And then Stephen goes on to do the same types of things that the apostles had done. The spirit has this effect when he comes into a believer's life. They begin to understand the scriptures. They begin to teach their their neighbors uh, about the gospel. They begin to show the fruit of, of the Holy Spirit. And so this is what this is what Stephen is doing. He's bringing a history-informed gospel and a warning of judgment and a proclamation of Jesus as Lord and Christ. And this is the end goal of this sermon is that you would see that in Stephen's life and in his death he shows Jesus Christ as supremely valuable. So Stephen in his in his uh, response to their accusi- accusations. He's brought before the religious leaders. You can, you can just say it's the Sanhedrin, over the, even though it doesn't say it's the Sanhedrin. He comes before all these elders of the Jewish people and they ask him, um, you know, what's going on, Stephen? What are you saying? Make a defense. And he does. He begins with Abraham and he talks about how God had called Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia not in Jerusalem, when he was in Mesopotamia and how he had dealt with Joseph in Egypt and dealt with Moses in Egypt and brought them and promised them a land, which God then faithfully brought them to. And in so doing, in in, in demonstrating God chose Abraham and God chose Moses, he then highlights that the people of God rebelled against Moses, even though God had chose, them, chose him. And the same thing goes on uh, over and over again in the Old Testament, and so Stephen is providing a summary of god's god 's righteous anger and indignation towards the people of Israel. This is uh, the full explanation of the the parable that Jesus uh, said about the the vineyard and the landowners. if you 've ever heard that parable but not understood it the The vineyard is rented out to someone, and then the the owner of the vineyard says, "Sends people to go get the fruit." out of the vineyard, but the landowner or the people who are renting, every time the landowner sends one of these guys, they beat him up. And then finally he sends his son and they kill him. Now, Jesus then goes on and says, what do you think the landowner will do to those evil renters? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's, that's the point of that parable. Um, so, in so doing, Stephen's message that day showed the rebellion of idol- and idolatry of Israel, the exaltation of the exclusivity of worship in Jerusalem as a thing, a merit of righteousness rather than uh, doing the law from the heart with joyfulness. And even though God had given the law, even though they prized this thing, he says that they didn't keep it. They didn't do the law. So just as the religious leaders turned to persecute Christ, because of these accusations against the, the unfaithfulness of Israel, so also they turn against Stephen. And this is where uh, Stephen becomes the first martyr. Uh, if you've ever heard the word martyr or martyrdom, someone who's died for the faith, it literally means in the scriptures, the faithful witness. When Jesus in Revelation 1 is called the one who is faithful and true, or the faithful witness, that word there in the Greek is actually martyr. And the reason it's the word martyr is um, Moses. No, no, nobody. Did I? Okay. Terrible joke. The reason that it's called the word martyr is because the end result of giving a faithful witness about the things of God is death. That is, he, Stephen was killed because not because he was being an ignorant jerk or, or rude. He, he was killed because he was being true to what God had said. So in Stephen's very, uh, in in Stephen's witness that day, he was faithful all the way to the very end. And we see this uh, taking place. The life and death of Jesus is now in some way represented in the life and death of Stephen. And no, I'm not saying that Stephen accomplished the atonement. But what I'm saying is that we as Christians are to live out our faith as imitators of Christ Matthew twenty six sixty three through 64, but Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God, Jesus said to him, you have said so. As in um, he's saying it's plain, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus is doing, Jesus as the great prophet, Jesus being, prophet, priest, and king. As the great prophet, he's prophesying that the only way the religious leaders will see Jesus from now on is from his ascended uh, place at the right hand of the father. And the phrase coming on the clouds of heaven is a phrase that describes executing judgment with power and authority. And so Jesus is telling these religious leaders, you are only going to see me after I die and defeat death and defeat Satan, you're only going to see me from now on as being exalted and lifted high and magnified. And so Jesus tells them this is going to take place. And then this is what happens with, uh, with Stephen. So just for background, if you're unsure the seat at the right hand is the position of authority and power. One who is said to sit at the right hand is a delegate ruler and an executive executor of authority. If you remember, Moses had risen to a position of prominence at one time. Uh, Disney made a movie called the Prince of Egypt. He was, he was the Prince of, he was at the right hand of Pharaoh. This is uh, over and over again. It's old Testament language to describe someone who has extreme power and authority. That is whatever Moses does, Pharaoh has done. That's, that's the kind of effectiveness that the person sitting at the right hand has. So when Jesus prophesied that he would ascend to the right hand, he was actually asserting his equality with the father, which was the very thing that he was being accused of and um, that the Jews had seen as, or had, had thought was heresy or, or an abomination. And that is the reason Jesus was killed. So Stephen's spirit enabled sight that day fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus, that the son of man would be at the right hand of God. When he tells the um, the religious leaders in Matthew 26, that you'll only see me, he, he's not saying that they're going to have an ecstatic spiritual vision, but that in all their dealings with the Christians going forward, Jesus will be seen as the one who, with power and authority. And so Stephen lives true to this revelation that he had concerning the Christ. Stephen not only had known that Jesus was both Lord and Christ and had ascended and the Holy Spirit had come, but in the moment he has a spiritual, ecstatic, you know, what we call an ecstatic vision. That is, the Holy Spirit opened up Stephen's eyes to see through the heavenlies, just like John the Revelator in John 1. And Stephen sees through the heavenlies and sees the Son of Man, that is, Jesus in his glorified, ascended, reigning state. And he gives a prop and and Stephen says what he sees. And so in his death, he imitates his master just as the crowd cried out, crucify him speaking of Christ. So also this crowd comes after Stephen. It says that they screamed aloud with one voice. And when he spoke further, they actually put their hands on their ears. They were ignorant and deaf to what Stephen was saying. Their outside, their inner deafness became their physical outward deafness as they put their hands over their ears and they rushed out him. <clears throat> Just as Jesus suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem, that is in Hebrews 13, 12, it says that he was taken out of the gate, which speaks of the Old Testament understanding of the, um, the scapegoat. Uh, so also Stephen is pushed out by this angry mob. It says they literally push him out of the city. And knowing that he about, is about to die, Stephen is feeling these rocks being hurled at him. Stephen entrusts his spirit to God. Whereas Jesus had said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. And like Christ, Stephen, in his death, being filled with the spirit of grace and truth, prays for mercy on those who are killing him. Whereas Christ had prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen prays, Lord, Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. And these words and parallels are not a literary trick. They are extremely significant. This is the Bible's way. The Bible only has one way of speaking in it. It has the way of speaking of literature. And in this way, both the true account of Stephen's life and the true recording by the hand of Luke, the physician, demonstrate that Stephen was completely faithful to the end of his life. And he, in his death, as well as in his preaching that day, was testifying that Jesus was not only Lord and Christ, but also equal with the Father. So that is why, young men, I tell you to rise up and overcome the things that this age is trying to put on you with pornography and lust and greed and all of these things that keep us in the murk and the mire of of base living. If we will get rid of those things and throw them away, God will shine upon us. And it's not only the fact that we take a step toward him, but he also takes steps toward us. And that is the grace that's found in his word, his Holy Spirit, and in the church. And it's also found when we experience Christ at the table in communion. So with that, let's take the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We ask you that you would open our eyes to the beautiful things of of scripture. God, we ask you that we would not be settling for lesser forms of entertainment and distraction, but that we would see the themes of your book as beautiful and holy. You are a glorious, just God who executes judgment, even though you're a God of tender, sweet mercy, showing compassion to thousands and thousands of those who call on you. Lord, we ask you that you would forgive the church in America, of the sin of ignorance of your word, and that you would fulfill in us a a deep hunger for your scripture to be made alive. God, we ask for a restoration of the apostolic power and preaching that accompanied your first century church. Lord, we ask that you would help us be able to articulate the gospel with boldness and clarity. In Jesus' name, amen.